and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we address issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, and too often ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Grant Evatt, a veteran army commando who now practices law in a firm he founded to specialize in personal injury cases. He's coordinated the Military Special Interest Group for the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers and is a recognized authority in military claims. He's won millions of pounds for his injured clients and their grieving families and is much liked and respected by them and his peers for his exceptional client care and dedication to their cause. He's here today to speak with me about his experience with prostate cancer and specifically the treatment he sought with HIFU. Grant, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Claire, it's a real pleasure. Good. Well, let's get started. Um, I mean, why don't we just jump right in and talk about HIFU before we get into some of the contextual issues about your own personal experience. How did you actually learn about, you know, what HIFU was, its availability, and how did you find a practicing urologist that offered it to you? It's a a good question. Um, I knew nothing of HIFU at all until after my, my diagnosis. And my father, he just WhatsApped me one evening and said, have you seen this clinic in Southampton? And I live in Hampshire, Wiltshire, Borders. That, that was my own first and only introduction to the, the focal therapy clinic in HIFU. And mm-hmm. so what I, and what I did was, after my diagnosis and the recommendations from the treating consultants, um, I contacted Tim Dudridge, one of the consultants, who is one of the HIFU practitioners here in the UK. And I, and I, I paid for a private consultation. It, well, Claire, it wasn't expensive. I mean, if you trying to preserve your life and, and everything else down below, then um, I, th- I think the small amount that I paid was, was money well spent. Mm-hmm. So, and I went to see him and, um, and he explained to me what high food was and, and I went, went ahead with it. And you mentioned your dad, and I know we talked a little bit before about you know, his influence in this whole story. So h- how did your family history with prostate cancer impact your actions? That had a, a huge influence on the decisions that I made because my, my grandfather, who fought in the Second World War, in fact, he was one of those soldiers evacuated from Dunkirk and he went into North Africa afterwards mm, and also, wow. also into the Mediterranean countries. Um, he died aged only 66 in the 1980s of prostate cancer. Okay. Um, uh, subsequent to that, my um, biological father also developed prostate cancer about the same time as his, his father and he got in touch, and, and, and that's where this all started. It's just such a shock. I mean, I'm sure you'll probably ask me the question, you know, what, how did you feel when you were diagnosed? I think for me, Claire, what was key is getting in there really early. Mm. In late 2020, COVID year, of course, none of yeah. us can forget that, um, I, I went for a, uh, encouraged by my father, I went for an, a second routine PSA test. I'd had one three years earlier when I turned 50. So I was mm-hmm. 53 in 2020. And um, so I, I had a PSA test, very simple blood test, and, and it came back raised, but not raised a significant amount, but because of my family history, and my understanding of you know, what had happened in the past to the, the men in my family, the recommendation from the consultants was, Grant, we, we've, got to, we've got to do something about this now, because if you leave it, it is certainly going to get worse and it's going to escape the prostate and go into the other organs in that part of your body and, and the bones and everything. And then, 
the chances of um, improving my life expectancy were, were, were just going to be slowly diminished the longer I left it. So, so you year. sought out the, and because of the history, you actually um, actively sought the, the PSA tested and you, you obviously had a GP that was quite willing to cooperate with your request. My GP was absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's my, good to hear. Yeah. That's, that's very good to hear. So then, then when, when you had said you had this raised level in 2020, then you were referred to a urologist initially? I, I was referred to urologists mm-hmm. who then um, sent me for um, uh, um, uh, like a 3T kind of um, MRI scan. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not called that, but where yeah. you're sedated and everything, and, uh, and they put some dye through mm-hmm. the blood and everything. So I had that. And with that MRI scan, they were able to actually see the lesions, you know, the, the small tumours in the prostate. What followed that was a biopsy, mm-hmm. which was done under general anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. And, and Claire, I can happily tell you and anyone listening to this, it was, I had more pain parking the car than I did actually going through the procedure. Um, mm. It was painless and I was Good. very well looked after by NHS. I'm not saying that, just I'm not being flippant here. I, I mean it, they, they really did look after me. Subsequent to that was the consultation with the consultant neurologist. And I was unaccompanied because of COVID and masked up and everything. And But there was a nurse in the, in the room as well. And, and they just kind of, it's a bit like a movie scene. You know, you see these Hollywood movies or TV programs in the UK. Grant, you have cancer. And, you, and it's such a shock mm-hmm. because we all think, particularly people from my background, we all think we're indestructible. We're not. We're just flesh and bone. And this, this disease is not uh, exclusive. Uh, it will catch anybody. Mm-hmm. That's what I discovered. So when you were given the diagnosis and, and after the initial shock, the information that you had to process, was that did that also include recommended treatment? And, and how did that set off your journey to find Haifu? I was given two recommendations. Mm-hmm. First one was not really a recommendation. It was a case of, well, we'll do some active surveillance for the next few years and then we'll get in there if it does get a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, I was discouraged from taking that option. The only other option, this, and there were only two options, and that was what's called radical prostatectomy, which is a removal of the prostate gland. Mm-hmm. Now, before I even looked up and learned about HIFU and went to the focal therapy clinic, I decided on that route. So Christmas 2020... I decided that in the new year, I'd have radical prostatectomy. Wow. Because that was the recommendation given to me. I was given a folder of information from uh, Prostate Cancer UK, a mm-hmm. uh, great bundle of documents. Mm-hmm. Didn't mention HIFU. It does, there's a, within the pack, there was something about um, sort of experimental treatment, um, which I had to read, but nothing specific. If my father hadn't put me onto HIFU, then I think I'd have ended up having radical prostatectomy wow. in February last year, instead of which I had HIFU. And talking to you now, I am very, very well indeed. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that, that is an incredible story, especially that, you know, um, you know, your family history. I mean, not only was it what caused you to go seek, you know, the initial PSA test, but actually he pointed you in the direction that's, um, you know, giving you back your health today. So, it's pretty, pretty influential. I, I'd just like to turn a little bit because you mentioned about your grandfather and you know specifically his um, role in in wartime, and and you are an army veteran, obviously, and, and quite a specialized a commando, no less. Um, can you tell us a bit more about in in that community what your experience is with the information and awareness that veterans receive about prostate cancer and and how things might 
be different or, you know, better or worse or indifferent in the military community? It's a very good question. And, uh, and it's one that I'd anticipated you would ask, actually. I suppose I can respond by saying most, um, excuse me, I'll only talk about men here because it's a cancer that only affects men, but of course mm-hmm. there, are, mm-hmm. there are fantastic female service, uh, service women as well. But I'm only talking about the blokes. Most men who join the army, join or Navy, Air Force, Royal Marines, join very early, uh, you know, very young. Myself, mm-hmm. I was 16 and a half, um, 12 months after the end of the Falklands conflict, and that influenced me to join the military in the first place. Okay. And, and you, you tend to serve... I mean, I served 12 years. You tend to serve 22 years or 24 years or some, some go on to have a much longer service to age 55. They're complete lunatics and they just can't get enough of it. But, um, yeah. but, jokes, but jokes aside, so what tends to happen, though, is most men who leave the military leave some years before they become a prostate cancer sort of potential risk. Yeah, yeah. They're either in their 30s, which I was. Sorry, well, late 20s, actually, I was. Or mm-hmm. their 30s or at their early 40s. But the question is, well, how is prostate cancer viewed? Is it discussed amongst the veteran community? I think it is. But I can only really talk about my own community because we all chit-chat to each other. We have regular commando reunions. We've got one down in Plymouth in, uh, not this week, in the middle of May, Mm -hmm. uh, the 60th anniversary of the regiment and the 40th anniversary of the end of the Falcons War. Um, We do chat amongst ourselves. And, and I do know some, have some friends who've had prostate cancer or have it now. So we do share the knowledge. I can't criticise the former paymasters, the MOD. It's not, their, it's not their job to persuade veterans. It's not the job of the government to persuade veterans to go and check prostate cancer. And that, that might sound controversial. I, I don't think mili- military veterans with prostate cancer should be singled out. Mm-hmm. I think the problem affects all men. We're ignorant of the risk. I was. Yeah. I mean, I, I take your point about, you know, um, I mean, you've given some some very good examples and, you know, d- the detail about the age, you know, specifically of when people leave. And and the, but then, of course, you know how you, you keep in touch. So I, I guess the question is, you know, do you think that the armed forces, I mean, it clearly has influence on men's health issues. And, and do you think that that they could play a different kind of role. And maybe not so much, um, you know, while men are in active service, obviously back to some of your points about age, but but just certain, just, just in terms of, of having a, a male-dominated community, um, that that they have the opportunity to, to disseminate and to promote disseminate information that those men could also even share amongst men outside that community. I don't know, what do you think? Uh, uh, yes, I think that's possible. Certainly what is high on the agenda and has been for uh, three, four, five years, mainly because of the conflicts in the Middle East, is men's mental health, the mental health of veterans. Yes. Um, and I suppose, really, if you've got mental health issues and you get prostate cancer as well, then that could well tip you over the edge. But yes, yes. I think, I, I believe, I'm bound to be others who disagree, but I do believe that within the veterans community, we, we are, we do keep, is it what's important to me, particularly in my role, as a solicitor, and I represent injured uh, servicemen and women and veterans. Indeed. Is that we we share our knowledge, hence this podcast, hence me saying, yes, I want to talk about this. Because if I if just me doing this podcast, if this is heard by one fifty-something veteran mm. with no symptoms, which is myself, mm-hmm. otherwise in fit as a fiddle, apart from 
dodgy knees and hips and elbows and shoulders and all that malarkey. Yeah, um, yeah. We've all got that for yep. one reason. Looking Bergens everywhere. Um, <laughs> if I could persuade just one guy to make a call to his GP and go and have a, a prostate cancer PSA test, mm-hmm. then this 15, 20-minute chat with you, uh, Claire, is, is I think it's worth its weight in gold. Um, yeah, so well, that's... Everyone listening, yeah, just that's go and get tested. You, you, you must do this. And um, since my um, getting the all clear, okay, I've got to keep having blood tests every six months or so, but I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, mm. Mm. Guys, if anyone's listening, or, or I put it, I have put it on Facebook. I've even put it on LinkedIn, uh, and people have spoken to me about it. I've had people from all around the world who know me who have said, mm. "What do I need to do?" And I've said, "Do this privately." Obviously, the direct message. It is so much easier to prevent the worsening of this dreadful disease now than it would be if you if you leave it too late. And as I said, you don't need to have any symptoms. I didn't have any. Yeah. And yeah. I have a cancer growing inside my body. Yeah. And even you said it was your father that was the one. Yeah. Who, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's interesting in itself. Um, I mean, I completely take your point about um, the PSA test. And, and I think your message will, will certainly amplify that. But but just one other question, I guess. I mean, it's one thing to 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 tell men and to you know advise them to go get a PSA test. What about those that are newly diagnosed, um, you know, given that you kind of had a, a shift as it were from, you know, one direction of treatment to something completely different. What would be your advice to somebody who was newly diagnosed with prostate cancer? Okay. First thing I say is don't panic. Don't panic unless they're wheeling you into the operating theater five minutes later, because it's that urgent, which is unlikely, very unlikely. So don't mm-hmm. panic mm-hmm. and research, find your options. Look, the NHS costs us billions of pounds each year. And it is the role of the doctors to try and prolong our lives and make us well, okay? We're giving some choices and you as a, as a grown adult, and provided you, you, want, you, know, you, want, you, you can read and understand this stuff, you, you take response, personal responsibility for, you, for what happens to you. The doctors can only give you some advice. I don't blame them for not recommending high food. I wish they had, but I don't blame them. Their thought was this. In my mind, this is what they were thinking. Right, Grant, with your family history, your raised prostate, and we can see the tumours, our advice is to remove the, the, the prostate. The reason they said that is because they'll never have to see me again. Because mm-hmm. prostate cancer is gone. I'm not going to get cancer. You know, I'm going to get more likely to get run over by a car, aren't I, that, that afternoon. Mm-hmm. With the prostate gone, I'm no longer potentially a burden to the National Health Service. Yeah, That's how it works. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. That's it. But for me, the risks were erectile dysfunction and um, incontinence. Incontinence, yeah. I I had to accept the very high risk that I would have both those problems from my early 50s for the rest of my life. life. And if I could just interrupt really quickly, I mean, I know you you talk about research. How did you find out about those side effects? I mean, was that told to you by your consultant urologist or was that something that... It, it was. was okay. It was. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, you know, and I, I would have had to give my consent to the procedure, and they would have said these. There are always risks of surgery, of course. But the largest risks to in a radical prostatectomy is you're left with those two conditions: incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And that was something that I wasn't going to be happy living with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I researched it. I, I researched. It, I looked at it. The internet's a, a dangerous but a wonderful place. <laughs> yeah. um, go yeah. to Prostate Cancer UK. 
but go to Claire. You're not paying me to say this, but guys, go and look up the focal therapy clinic and 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 consider your options. And honestly, if you need any more information, ping me a message and I'll be happy to chat to you as well. Well, that's the best recommendation I guess we can get. So um, I think on that note, um, I'll leave you. But I want to say, Grant, this has been extremely helpful. Um, you know, I hope we can get this out to a lot of your, you know, colleagues, um, both in the military and outside. And um, I really want to thank you so very much for joining me today. Claire, it's a pleasure. And my life is, is better because of having gone through this. I really mean that. And thank you very much. Pleasure. A transcript of this interview and links to more information about Grant and his work with military clients are available on the program notes on our website, along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer, as well as additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.